Roxy, are you going to Colorado for Thanksgiving? No, but did you know that Colorado is 276 miles by 387 miles and there are 58 mountain peaks over 14,000 feet, more than any other state? Um, can't say that I did. and I'm not sure why you know these numbers either. They are lodged in my head forever and ever and ever because we were drilled on them in Colorado history in eighth grade, which my dad taught, which meant that I had to be a star student. Ah, now I see. Rocky must sure love those Rockies. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women trying to really understand the places we call home. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. But for real, Roxy, what has got you thinking about Colorado history, including those random factoids? Part of what has me thinking about Colorado history right now is that it's Indigenous Peoples Month. And of course, as you mentioned, the week of Thanksgiving. Okay. Thanksgiving is definitely my favorite holiday. Totally team pumpkin pie. Get your pecans out of here. Yes. Pumpkin all the way. But the ways that we learned about this holiday, which I really love, were less than accurate, let's say. The origin mm-hmm. myth of Thanksgiving is just that, a myth, you know, in terms of you know, the history of Thanksgiving was part of a broader history that we now know wasn't entirely accurate. I think my dad actually did spend quite a bit of the year in Colorado history talking about the history of Colorado before Europeans arrived. Um, He spent several months on that. And I'm really grateful for that. Looking back, that feels really ahead of his time in a way. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite memories as a kid actually was going with him to visit the Mesa Verde cave dwellings in Colorado. They were built over 900 years ago by ancient Pueblo people. And what I didn't even realize at the time was that he was actually doing research um, for teaching the class, uh, which... I figured out years later when I took the class in junior high. Um, But we really did. We learned a lot about the major tribes in Colorado, the Arapaho, the Cheyenne, Apache, Comanche, Shoshone, and Ute tribes. Almost all of them were forced out of Colorado. Um, Ultimately, there's only a very small corner of Colorado that was set aside as a reservation, and most were forced into the Southwest, um, into Nevada, into deserts, where, of course, which was a completely unfamiliar climate and landscape for them. Um, and I, you know, I have these two distinct memories of the Colorado history class. I remember feeling really proud that Colorado joined the North in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And then I remember feeling so guilty over everything that had happened to the Native people. And again, while I'm grateful I got to learn that, I didn't know what to do with it. And that's the thing I think we just, you know, we learned it and then we moved on to the next part, the next chapter of Colorado history. And I think I'm still struggling with that, even as I think about like, how do we celebrate or commemorate Indigenous Peoples Month? Like, I don't know what to do with that history and I don't know what the right move is now. Right. I mean, I think what you're describing is... The experience of realizing that you you benefit because they suffered, even though you didn't directly make the decisions that your ancestors right. made. Yeah. And I think that you wrestle with that feeling that like this is the past that can't be fixed. And 
Like you can't go backward, you know? I mean, I certainly don't have answers to those questions, but I do think it's worth noting that even to this day, indigenous communities are still asking for the truth to be told. That seems like a really important place to start. And while I am really grateful to have learned that history and actually many, many, many years later realize that that's kind of rare to have gotten that history, um, I think I still don't know what to do with that grief over learning that history. And in some ways, it still felt even in the curriculum like this was like an inevitability and if it hadn't happened, we wouldn't have this great, beautiful country that we have today, you know? It was it was treated as unfortunate, but almost inevitable and certainly worth the cost because look at what we have now. Yeah, I, I think that that is, it, it's a difficult thing to quite put my finger on in the way that it felt like it was like, this is all coming to the pinnacle of where we are now, which is good. Right, I mean, it's certainly how we tell our history always reveals core beliefs about who we think we are and what's important to us. So certainly ideals around progress and industrialization and Mm -hmm. economic gain at any cost and white settlers being given a directive from God to... Mm -hmm settle Mm -hmm. into this new land and find freedom there. And God was making a way for them. And so if God was making a way for the white settlers, then anything that happened in their name was justified. So at the very least, trying to connect the history to the present day and asking like, what kind of beliefs or attitudes are still prevalent that still cause human suffering and degradation And what are the ramifications of these things that might still be resonating today? Right. I mean, as Christians, I think what history requires of us is just to acknowledge the bedrock belief that humans are capable of really great things and really horrible things. That seems (laughs) seems really important to remember how people before us have messed up and what what we're still what we're still grappling with because of their actions and because of their propensity for evil. Mm -hmm. I I think there can be a temptation maybe for white American Christians to collapse Christian identity with American identity Mm -hmm. and to always be cheering for our white ancestors. But as a Christian, I feel like I have a higher responsibility, which is to remember rightly and to actually mourn and not just celebrate. Yeah, these are all the kinds of questions I'm asking myself right now as a Christian, too. And in thinking about, okay, it's Indigenous Peoples Month. What does that mean for me to commemorate this, honor the people who were here before us who suffered in these ways? And not just how do I honor their past, But what do I do for their present descendants? Like, what does it look like to be seeking some kind of forgiveness? Probably we're going to have to go beyond coloring in the cornucopia. And offering pumpkin pie. As much as I love it. Well, 
Yeah, I think those are really good questions. I certainly don't know what restitution looks like on an individual level. I think you know, in the church over the past several years, there's been an increased mm-hmm. desire among white Christians to grapple with this country's history and to learn from indigenous voices, including indigenous Christians, the key aspects of what we've missed in our faith practice. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, I have been reading Caitlin Curtis. She's a Brazos Press author. And one thing that she wrote about recently as it comes to Indigenous Peoples Month is to actually make a plan to learn about the Native history of where you live today. And she makes the point that this, you know, it shouldn't just be a one-time thing. It shouldn't just be for the month of November. But such an important part of this process is becoming educated. And these groups are still fighting to have their true stories honored and heard. So as part of that ongoing education, we decided, Roxy and I, to take a field trip to the National Museum of the American Indian here in New York. Get your field trip hat on. We're heading out. So we're here on the steps of the National Museum of the American Indian in Battery Park, New York. Have you been here before, Caitlin? Nope. This is a new New York experience. And it strikes me, standing on the steps, that the building is very Eurocentric, Federalist. Um, Yeah, the architecture is very European, neoclassical, if you will. And I will. (laughs) We're about to go into the native New York section of the museum. It says, long before there was a New York state, its lands encompassed thousands of native towns, cornfields, fishing grounds, and hunting territories. European traders and other colonists migrated to these lands intending to stay. This forced some native New Yorkers to seek safety elsewhere. Other native people managed to remain and their descendants live here today. Still other native communities moved into New York seeking alliances and new homes. Today these native people all remain deeply connected to their New York homelands. It says here that the Shinnecock and their neighbors, the Unkachag, are the only Long Island native nations that have managed to keep some of their land. In Southampton... I'm assuming most of the people who summer in Southampton are not aware that it is Shinnecock territory. Yeah, I think the Hamptons feel a little different now. The Lenape had all these negative consequences when the Dutch and British colonies were coming in because there was this disease war. Their farm animals were destroying their corn, so they were forced out of New York and then headed west. And a lot of their ancestors are now part of Delaware nations, but just recognizing they lost their home because of the, the colonies coming in. It's saying here that they moved some to Ohio and even further into, like, Kansas and into the Rocky Mountains. So, like, where we grew up. Grew up, right. I definitely remember going to look for arrowheads in the cornfields, like, right next to the suburb where I grew up. There were a lot of them in the fields around where I grew up, and it was definitely, like... Yeah, a child adventure to go treasure hunting for arrowheads. So, did not know that Manhattan comes from a Lenape word meaning 
place for gathering wood to make bows, Manahata. It was a forest, plentiful trees, waterways, easy access to routes for trade. There's nothing in Manhattan currently that would really retain that meaning aside from it being like a place of economic mm-hmm. activity. But even the name of the place that we're standing on is from a Lenape word. I recently went up to um, Inwood and in Inwood Park there's a rock that's a monument for where Manhattan was purchased from the native tribes for not very much money. I think I said I saw a sign out there that said it was the equivalent of $24. Yeah. Probably the thing from the museum trip today that stood out to me the most was realizing that the Dutch essentially paid the equivalent of $24 to buy Manhattan from the Lenape residents who were living here. Right. And the Lenape entered into that agreement with the understanding that there would be like an ongoing, mutually beneficial Mm -hmm. relationship. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then it ended up being, I remember specifically the the sign said that there had been a misunderstanding. (laughs) It's like, uh, I don't know if it, I don't know if the settlers meant it to be a misunderstanding or if they were kind of taking advantage of the Lenape Mm -hmm. who lived here. But obviously the Lenape felt cheated, right? Like this is the land that they had been living on for hundreds of years. Yeah, I mean, all of their lives were intimately entwined with the land of what we now call Manhattan. And it was purchased for $24. Yeah. And the museum seemed to make clear that, you know, this idea of land purchase and ownership was not really part of their social structure. They didn't think of the land as something that a person could own forever and ever. It was shared. It was supposed to right. be shared because who can say that they own the land? Right, right. Mm-hmm. What else stood out to you? Well, I noticed that as the Lenape, the the people who were living throughout what we now call New York, you know, their land was taken. A lot of them made their way west. You know, they were pushed farther out into the country. A lot of them ended up in Ohio. So mm-hmm. that forced migration had an effect on where I grew up, right? Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I only have a couple memories of learning about indigenous history in Ohio, um, but just seeing the connection between what happened in New York and then what would later happen in Ohio. And even those tribes who settled in Ohio were also eventually mm-hmm. forced even farther west through treaties where you know, the settlers were continuing to take that land. So, yeah, it seems just like a series of unfair arrangements mm-hmm. that forced people to leave their homes over and over and over again. It seems like what we're kind of learning is that it's all connected, that a lot of the Native and Indigenous groups in New York that were forced out of New York early on began to migrate into Western territories and cause tension in Western territories that already had Native communities. Well, I'm reminded of our conversation with Lisa Sharon Harper and the difference between migrating as a choice in search of better opportunity and then being forced to migrate and how the 
experience of being forced to leave your home is traumatic and that can carry on for generations when you don't have a choice right. but to leave because of disease or famine or war. This room is just like a long, narrow hallway of beautiful artifacts, rugs and clothing and beadwork and sculptures, masks. Lots of depictions of animals and the interaction between humans and animals. It makes sense that the the things from nature that would be like especially colorful and beautiful and rare would be incorporated into like special ceremonies. Right. The rare mm-hmm. would then become would take on like a special significance. Wow, it says here that the the Haudenosaunee still called George Washington and all US presidents Hanadaguyas. The name means town destroyer. It says here that George Washington ordered his generals to attack and burn Iroquois towns. So this is interesting. Under the leadership of a clan mother named Bernadette Bertie Hill, her community bought back the acres that were destroyed by Washington's armies and began to replant the 1,500 peach trees that had been destroyed. Oh, here's pictures of it, of them planting the new peach trees. And George Washington, who is often portrayed as a true hero with very little shadow side, that was definitely undermined today. Yeah, that stood out to me that you would, of course, think of George Washington differently depending on how he interacted with your ancestors. Yeah, I really enjoyed those sections as well. I think it reminded me that it's important not to reduce this month and our education to just the horrific parts. Like there's so Mm -hmm. much more to indigenous history and cultures than their suffering, right? Like the ability to continue um, creating forming community, expressing rage, expressing lament, but also expressing joy. That's a more humanizing, the like the full panoply of the human experience is really important to take in. And I felt like the sections of the museum that were spotlighting the artistry of various indigenous groups was really a good reminder of that. I think that's why I'm so excited for our guest today because... His work really celebrates the beauty of the spirituality and the culture and the art of Indigenous people in America and the gifts that those are for us. Today's guest is Terry Wildman, who led the creation of the First Nations translation of the New Testament. Our hope is that it will help people realize that that a monocultural view of God is not good for any of us. Terry is of Ojibwe and Yaqui ancestry, and he's an author, recording artist, songwriter, and storyteller. Our conversation with Terry is coming up just after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. If you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, one of the best ways to support us is by donating to Religion News Service. RNS is a nonprofit newsroom and relies on reader support. 
Right now, you can donate through Newsmatch at religionnews.com. Also, you know what to do. If you like what we're doing here at Saved by the City, you need to let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. You're going to have some time over this Thanksgiving break, so you might as well share our episodes. Or send us an email at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We'd love to hear from you, and we will reply after we sleep off the turkey. Yeah. Bacon wrapped. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Today's guest is Terry Wildman. He's the lead translator of the First Nations Version New Testament and the chief of Rain Ministries, a nonprofit based in Arizona. He's been the director of spiritual growth and leadership development with Native InterVarsity since June 2020. Welcome to the show, Terry. Hey, thanks for having me here. I think to start, tell us just a little bit about the First Nations translation and kind of how you how you even went about like tackling such a large project. I just started kind of noticing that uh, in the ministry I was doing, I would I would do talking circles in the jail. Of course, I would always share Jesus as part of the uh, talking circle. But I started noticing that a lot of the the guys and the and the women weren't connecting to the NIV. I started just mm-hmm. wondering why, and I started experimenting with rewording some of the English into a form of English that really related to uh, the Hopi people, the Native people in general, actually. We found out there hasn't been an English translation that has been worded with Native people in mind to relate to Native people. Mm -hmm. Because even though a lot of our Native people don't speak their language anymore, they still connect culturally to who they are. And many of Mm -hmm. them, even though they've lost some of their culture and lost uh, their language, they still want to connect back. And they do that often Mm -hmm. through the elders or through writings by the elders and some of the the books Mm -hmm. that have, have come out. So a CD that went from creation to Christ rewording the whole story of the Bible brought down mm. to just 50 minutes, 18, 18 tracks on the CD. We, with, we did that with the help of several other Native people. And we submitted it to the Native American Music Awards. We won the award for Best Spoken Word. Mm. Oh, wow. And so we, we just knew we were connecting. And since I wasn't professionally trained to be a Bible translator, I wasn't yet thinking mm. <laughs> in any way I was going to be doing a Bible. I just thought mm-hmm. this was uh, really a good thing. And about 2012, I committed myself to the task. And that's when all the doors opened. A Bible translation mm-hmm. organization got involved, One Book of Canada. And we partnered together. And, and then we worked with lots of different Native people. The First Nation version, even though I'm sort of the visionary, the, the lead translator, mm-hmm. and the project manager, it was done by a, 
a number of Native people. We had a council of 12 from many different tribes, and we also had, mm -hmm. oh, probably another 25 or 30 reviewers involved, all Native people involved in reviewing and mm -hmm. giving feedback. Thank you for sharing the origin story of the Bible. That's really interesting. This is speaking in generalizations, but what are some of the characteristics or distinctives of an indigenous Bible that you have found to really connect with Native readers? How would you describe this more kind of Native traditional sound? One of the things that we really tried to do, being that our Native people are traditionally storytellers, mm -hmm. and that's how we learn about who we are, is from our storytellers. And storytellers uh, never feel like they have to give an exact word for a word when they retell a story. They just make sure the essence of the story is is captured. And they try to present the story in a in an engaging way. So that's what we aim for with the, mm -hmm. with the First Nation version, that it would actually, if read out loud, it captures a, a, an oral cadence. Mm -hmm. And they did give the feedback that, yes, it does sound like storytelling. It sounds like, like my mm -hmm. grandpa when he used to sit with me at the table and tell me stories and things like that. So that's some of the distinctiveness. The other is in the choice of mm -hmm. words we used. We used words that mean something to our Native people that you'll find a few verses in there that non-Native people may not understand. Mm -hmm. Like, can you give an example? We talk about how that uh, Jesus, our Creator, sets free. We use the meanings of the name. That's another distinctive thing. He set us free by offering his life like the smoke of burning sage. Now, for Native people, you know, we know what that means because sage is a Mm -hmm. uh, it is an herb that we burn for incense. And when, when the smoke goes up, our prayers are joined with the smoke and we're praying for purification. Mm -hmm. So the idea that mm -hmm. Jesus purifies us through his death uh, on the cross, like the smoke of burning sage, in other words, we connect the idea of purification to Jesus and what he did. And so that's that's one mm -hmm. small example of of that. But a lot of non-Native people have really resonated with this translation also because it kind of gives a, a, a another lens to a cultural lens to mm -hmm. view the scriptures through. We're hearing a lot now about the complex and you know painful relationship between indigenous Americans and how they view Christianity. Obviously, Christian power has historically been tied to the marginalization, colonization of Native groups in this country for the last several hundred years. So I imagine for a lot of Native Americans, Christianity and Christian's Bible represents a kind of violence and power over and domination. So how do you see this indigenous Bible beginning to heal or change that relationship and that view? Well, one of the things is that at the very opening of this New Testament, we have a dedication. And that dedication acknowledges the pain, the suffering that has been caused uh, through a, a misrepresentation of who Jesus mm -hmm. really is. Our hope is that the First Nation version uh, will begin to, because it presents things in a, in a more indigenous way of thinking in the word choices, uh, that it'll help break down some of the barriers. And when, when Native people see that Native people 
are doing this and that non-native people are actually liking this, it begins to go, okay, maybe there's a way for us to come together. Maybe we can find some common ground. And we're hoping that the translation will uh, cause people to be more curious about native people. Especially mm-hmm. in Christianity and the body of Christ, we have been undervalued as a people. Who are our native Christian leaders, national leaders? Can, can you name them? You know, uh, a lot of people mm-hmm. can't name them. We have leaders that could be national voices, but whenever there's big seminars and webinars, they're very seldom, if ever, welcome to the table. But maybe this translation will begin to uh, cause non-native people to be more curious about what we have to offer. Theologians and and universities are talking to me mm-hmm. now and listening more, and they understand that there's been issues in the past. Native people would love to resolve these issues, but they're not resolved by hiding them. They're not resolved by pushing mm. them under a rug. They're not resolved by saying, you should just get over this. They're resolved mm-hmm. by listening to the stories, listening to the perspectives of Native people and why we feel the way we do and how we view Christianity and how could that be rectified? How could that be changed? Mm -hmm. When I think about the New Testament, I mean, Jesus was always talking in parables, the sort of storytelling. But then when I think about like translating, I don't know, First, first like it seems like a much, yeah, it seems more difficult. Were there some passages or some books that your authors that you really struggled with in this translation that were harder? I became a believer in Jesus young in life. And so that's helped me Mm -hmm. make this transition. I wasn't raised in my native ways. I was raised outside my native ways Mm -hmm. and I only knew I had native heritage. So I, over the years, I've connected Mm -hmm. to that native heritage and in, in doing so, I had to go through a struggle myself. But one of the things I've done is I've been mentored by, by Native elders. I, I've gone through mentoring and naming processes. My favorite book has always been Ephesians. And mm-hmm. I love the way Paul uh, expresses himself, both in Ephesians and Colossians, but Ephesians takes uh, the, the best. So I was wondering, would this storytelling cadence work in Paul's writings? And it does. And that's what surprised me, and it surprises a lot of people. Paul is a Mm -hmm. storyteller. You know, in the book of Hebrews, it goes through all the storytelling about all the people of, the Hebrew people of faith in the past. It tells a little bit of their story. And so when Paul was writing, he was connecting in his letters to these ancient stories that the Jewish people knew. And he was introducing Gentiles to those stories, and some portions of, of Corinthians were difficult, not because the concepts were hard, but because the culture was so different. So in their, our translation, we Native people understand taboos and traditions and cultural ways of doing things. And we know from tribe to mm-hmm. tribe, it's different. What one tribe permits, another tribe doesn't. And so mm-hmm. what we did in the translation was we inserted some comment sections to ex- mm. explain what this might, what Paul might be talking about, and compared it to some practices, like in our powwows and things like that, some of the things we do, uh, and it's just mm-hmm. a, a cultural tradition that we understand, um, and so we kind of connected that to some of Paul's writings. To go back to something you said earlier, you talked about why you believe this translation could be helpful for 
non-Indigenous people too. So when you think about non-Natives who might pick this up, what are you hoping for them as they read and study it and how it might impact their understanding of God and of Christianity and all of that? We have those readers who are from what I would call the dominant culture, the white culture, mm-hmm. okay? The, but we mm-hmm. also have a lot of other groups, the Asian, the black, and all these. And we're finding that mm-hmm. uh, different people read it different ways and make connections in different ways. For non-Native people, some of them have told me, I was kind of like worn out on reading the Bible. It just seemed mm-hmm. kind of bland to me after reading it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. and. All of a sudden, I, I open up the First Nation version, and the words are fresh. The words are new. They impact mm-hmm. me emotionally in different ways. They make me think about uh, the world a little bit differently. And they and then it makes me think, oh, my gosh, we're not the only culture there is. We're, we don't have the only way of looking at things. <laughs> oh, you know, mm-hmm. and so that's our hope is that it will help people uh, realize that, that a monocultural view of God is not good for any of us. Mm-hmm. And, and the other side of it is just that uh, it creates some curiosity about our Native people. Native ways of thinking, Native ideas, and just the idea that Native people are here and offering something mm-hmm. new, offering something mm-hmm. different, that it will cause people to, to begin to value what Natives have, have to offer uh, because mm-hmm. it's been undervalued. We've been kind of pushed aside. We don't get in the news very often mm-hmm. uh, where, where many other cultures do. Truly, we still have many issues today that we're dealing with with mm-hmm. the government and with states and and with mm-hmm. uh, recognition and things like that. So that's some of our hope. Mm. Yeah, I hear you saying that we'd be mistaken to assume that the this translation of the New Testament is just for indigenous readers, right? It's for the whole church to reflect on and like a prism turning, seeing different dimensions of the story of God and Christ reflected in this particular cultural context. Um, so to that end, we wondered if you would be willing to read a few of your favorite passages from the First Nations version of the New Testament that you've helped to create. Sure. I'll read a little bit from Matthew. How about the Beatitudes? Yeah, that would be lovely. That's perfect. All right. In Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 3, Creator's blessing rests on the poor, the ones with broken spirits. The good road from above is theirs to walk. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who walk a trail of tears, for he will wipe the tears from their eyes and comfort them. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who walk softly and in a humble manner. The earth, land, and sky will welcome them and always be their home. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who hunger and thirst for wrongs to be made right again. They will eat and drink until they are full. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who are merciful and kind to others. Their kindness will find its way back to them, full circle. Creator's blessing rests on the pure of heart, for they are the ones who will see the Great Spirit. Creator's blessing rests on the ones who are hunted down and mistreated for doing what is right. 
for they are walking the good road from above. I'll do also John three sixteen and 17, since people are very familiar with that. Mm-hmm. The Great Spirit loves this world of human beings so deeply, he gave us his Son, the only Son who fully represents him. All who trust in him and his way will not come to a bad end, but will have the life of the world to come that never fades away, full of beauty and harmony. Creator did not send his Son to decide against the people of this world, but to set them free from the worthless ways of the world. And then from Paul, Ephesians 4, 22 and 24. I was hoping you'd do something from Ephesians since it's your favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Take off that worn out and stained outfit of your past life with its selfish desires and worthless ways of thinking. It no longer represents who you are. You are now true human beings with a new way of seeing and thinking. Put on the regalia of your new life, for you have been made new, created again to look like the one who made you, standing in a good way and walking a true and sacred path. So beautiful. That was great. It really is. And I think anybody listening to that will, you know, why we were excited to bring you on and why I think that this is, as you said, a gift for so many people. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Terry. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. To learn more about the Bible that Terry helped translate, visit firstnationsversion.com or find it at your favorite bookseller. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Wyndham. Chaz Russo put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks Thanks for for listening.